Father, thank you for your word and thank you uh, for this psalm. Thank you for this book which reveals you to us and helps us to speak back to you. Pray that this evening you would encourage us, you would point us to Jesus, help us to live for him as we reflect on these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've came to the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount last week, Jesus' Mouth-Watering Manifesto. And uh, we are st- over the summer we're going to be looking at uh, various different psalms, and we're calling this series Psalms for All Seasons. And unfortunately the, the publicity we had um, ordered didn't arrive, but it will be here for next Sunday. There'll be some term cards and things for you to take away, to invite people with. Uh, But psalms for all seasons, different seasons of our lives, there is a psalm for each uh, one of them. Are you joyful? There's a psalm for that. Are you lonely? There's a psalm for that. Are you angry? There's a psalm for that. Are you confident and hopeful? You get the idea. As I've gone on in the Christian life, I've found myself drawn more and more to the psalms. They are a great resource to turn to in every season of our lives. Like all of Scripture, the Psalms point to Jesus. That's ultimately what they're here for. Uh, And they, they, they reveal God to us, but they also give us the words to speak back to God about that full range of experience and circumstances and emotion that we feel at different times, all the seasons of our lives. There are Psalms. And we're going to look at a different aspect of that each week over the summer. Today we begin with waiting. It's there in verse 14, the last verse of the psalm. Wait for the Lord. What are you like at waiting? Once upon a time there was a credit card called Access. Now, um, I guess most of us here may not remember that, including me. Um, But occasionally people talk about it. And uh, one thing they they sometimes mention is the advert. Now, I wonder if you have heard of this before. Um, I I have remembered the strap line, despite not really remembering the actual uh, credit card itself. It was, takes the waiting out of wanting. Takes the waiting out of wanting. Which, and this was, Access was kind of the first consumer credit card on the market that was widely available for anybody. Takes the waiting out of wanting. I think it's genius, isn't it? You can ask Joe later whether it really is genius advertising, but it sounds good to me. It's clever, it's memorable, uh, but it's also kind of tragic. Because it points to the fact that in our culture, we're getting less and less good at waiting. You know, why wait for a computer? Why wait for a stereo, a new sofa, a holiday, when you can have it right now and worry about the consequences later? It sounds so good, doesn't it? Then there's another advert that says it better, I think. Good things come to those who wait. Yes. Now, what's that being used to advertise? Guinness. That's right. Did you know, though, it was also before Guinness, it was used to advertise tomato ketchup, Heinz tomato ketchup. Now, we were, having, we were enjoying some tomato ketchup earlier on our barbecue, and we had it out of nice, squeezy bottles, which show us that even tomato ketchup is succumbing to the spirit of the age. 
because when good things come to those who wait was used as the tagline to advertise, the whole point was that tomato ketchup was in glass bottles, as you still find occasionally. If you go to Frankie and Benny's, for example, um, you, you get it in glass bottles. But you don't really anywhere else, do you? And uh, the whole point was you've got, to, you've got to stand there with your tomato ketchup like this, and you've just got to wait until it sort of plops out onto your plate. Do you remember, do you remember doing that? Do you remember sort of, and you get, to get a knife and sort of try and make it come out takes the waiting out of wanting is what they've done, isn't it, with their squeezy bottles and the amusing squelchy noises that accompany it. Now, of course, in in one sense, there's nothing wrong with squeezy tomato ketchup, and there's nothing wrong most of the times with credit cards when they're used responsibly, but they do tell us something about how we as a culture feel generally about waiting. If we can speed something up, we will, because why wouldn't you? And actually, these days, we rarely find ourselves waiting on a day-to-day basis, do we? Because you just get your phone out and to, to distract yourself from the fact that you're waiting. Sit on the, the, the tube in the rush hour in the morning, or in the evening. Everybody's on their, on their little device, whatever they're doing. Uh, there is uh, no waiting. You know, how, how could we possibly just sit and wait and gaze into space like people must have done all the time before about, I don't know, 1998 or something? You know, it's unthinkable, isn't it? But here's the thing, you see, that the more convenience that life becomes and the less we have to wait for anything at all, actually the less well-equipped we are to understand and live the Christian life. In the opening verse uh, David read for us, we heard Paul's summary in the New Testament of what it meant for the Thessalonian Christians to have started to follow Jesus. What did he say? What is a Christian according to him in those verses? He said, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. A Christian is somebody who's turned, someone who is serving, someone who is waiting. There is a sense of incompleteness about living as a Christian. We haven't yet arrived. We're still travelling because we're still waiting for Jesus to return. And until then, things will never quite feel sorted as much as we might want them to be. And they may even feel worse than that. So maybe you are waiting for something now, for God to answer prayer in some way, in the face maybe of illness, in the face of loss in the face of uncertainty, in the face of loneliness, whatever it might be. There is that sense of where is God in the midst of this pain, this uncertainty, this trouble? We are waiting. And the Psalms tell us, actually, this is normal human experience. And as we wait for God to answer, for something to happen, it's normal to experience fear. So look at Uh, Verse 1 in our psalm. As David the psalmist waits, what does he say? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of enemies attacking, David says he will not fear. Verse 3, he will be confident, he says. Now where does that confidence come from? It It comes from beginning, uh, it comes from knowing that the Lord is his light and his salvation. 
Think how light always conquers darkness. Darkness never wins, does it? it? It's so hard in London to achieve total darkness, isn't it? Uh, you you probably never get it outdoors anywhere in in the whole of the UK. You need to go somewhere like rural Canada or something like that to find actual, real, total darkness when the moon is not out. But even indoors, I think, in London, you know, it's so hard to totally shut out the light. The light always invades the darkness. The light is always overcoming the darkness. And you see, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of experiencing the fallenness of this world, the Lord is the light who conquers the darkness. He is the one who saves. But if we just say that, we miss something vital. There's a really important word in verse 1. Can you see? The Lord is not just the light. He's not just the salvation, the stronghold. He is my light. He is my salvation, my stronghold. So what David is saying is that what God is objectively as creator and sustainer and saviour, he is also subjectively for David. See, he makes a difference. He makes all the difference in the everyday circumstances and seasons of David's life. And so David prays, verse 4, one thing. One thing I ask of the Lord. Now I was struck as, I was, as I've been studying this psalm of how much it complements what we saw a, a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 6 about fear and about trust. It's the same kind of thought. What is your treasure in the midst of your fears? What is your one thing? See, if our, if our one thing is maybe our health, our financial security, our success, our career achievements, our happiness in whatever form we think that's going to take. Well, if if that is our one thing, well, all those things are good things. There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. But they're not things that God has promised to give us no matter what. So David's one thing that he prays for is not relief from his enemies. It's not relief from his sufferings. It's what we might expect him to pray, isn't it, if that's what the situation that he's in. Actually, it's something deeper than that. It's something that God is guaranteed to answer, no matter what. It is that he may dwell in the house of the Lord, that he may gaze on the beauty of the Lord, that he may seek him in his temple. Now, you might think that sounds like uh, three things, but really the second two explain the first, actually. So he's, and, and the rest of the psalm is structured around those thoughts. And that's what we're going to see here. As we wait, how can we wait confidently? We can wait confidently when we make these things our one thing that we ask. Here is a prayer that God will always answer. So let's see how that is. First of all, to dwell to dwell, verses 4 to 6. David longs to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Now, what does that mean? Well, for David, the house of the Lord was, was the tabernacle. Soon after David came, his son Solomon built the temple. Uh, those who sang this psalm in its final form when the Psalter was put together, they would have sung it in the temple. So that's uh, probably where the, how that word temple comes up in verse 4. 
but the, the point is uh, that, that he's thinking about that place where God dwells, first of all in a tent and later in a building. That's how it was for Old Testament Israel. Now, what does, what does King David mean? Does he mean that his one desire is to get a mattress and set up a little corner of the tabernacle or the temple, which is where he lives? You know, that is his one desire. I want to live there. Is that, is that quite what he means? You know, like children, imagine their teacher living in the cupboard in the classroom. Because, you know, how could, the, how could the teacher live anywhere else? That's the kind of thought process they go through, isn't it? You know, the t- no first name, no house, just a cupboard where Mrs. Jones spends her evenings and weekends. I've actually I've discovered that both children and adults very often imagine that vicars live in the church as well. That's um, uh, one thing. But, but is that what King David means as he, as he uh, prays this? See, the thing is, David was a king, but actually only the Levites and the priests could live in the tabernacle or in the temple. And even they weren't in the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. See, part of the answer is that what David is actually longing for is to experience the presence of God in his life. Wherever he is, whatever he's doing, he wants to see his face, as we'll see later on in verse 8. You don't know someone until you've seen their face. Now, you might say we're always in the presence of God. You know, he made everything. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent, as we sometimes call it. And yet there is a difference between being generally in someone's presence and knowing them face to face. So many people have been in the presence of the Queen, haven't we? Uh, maybe, you know, maybe you've been to a garden party, I don't know. Um, I, I once exchanged eye contact with her at the Chelsea Flower Show. I know, it's pretty hard to deal with, isn't it? But even that is nothing more than being in her presence. So if you try and get close to her at an event like that, and say, you know, Your Majesty, can we, just, can we just grab a chair and get a cup of tea? And I've just got some questions I'd like to ask you. Um, I really want to get to know you. I want to find out what makes you tick. Well, if you, you know, if you try and do that, you're going to get ushered away pretty quickly, aren't you? But David is saying he wants to know God. He, he wants to dwell with him. And when that happens, he says he will be safe, verse 5. See, it's not the physical building of the temple or the tabernacle that will keep him safe. It is God himself. And that means that God won't necessarily be keeping him safe by removing him from his circumstances or else by removing his circumstances from him that's not what this is saying because that's that's often the only thing we can imagine will work isn't it we say make it stop lord make it stop right now take away take me away from my circumstances that isn't what david's praying and saying he's saying actually god is going to make him safe even in the presence of his enemies Do you see there's a difference? He says it in verse 3. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. He says it again in verse 6. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Do you see his enemies are still right there. They're right next to him. They're kind of ganging up and they're saying, we're going to get you. And he's saying, no, in the presence of God, I am safe. Psalm 23 speaks of the Lord uh, as David's shepherd. And, and do you remember he says that he prepares a banquet for him in the presence of his enemies. It's the same idea, same kind of thought. 
Have you experienced this? See, it's sometimes hard times that bring out the most extraordinary blessing from God, in the, maybe in the form of kindness from, through his people. I've certainly done that for myself when I've been through illness and things in the past. You experience the kindness and presence of God in a new way when it's in the midst of suffering. Now, for David, there would always have been that sense of unfulfilled longing to be in the presence of God. Because the primary place you could meet with God was in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And Old Testament believers did know God. And they had the Holy Spirit. They, they wouldn't have been able to quite articulate it like we can, but they knew him. But actually, now that Jesus has come, things are different. We heard Jesus' words in the, in the reading from John. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then John says the temple he had spoken of was his body. Where is the presence of God most clearly and definitively seen? Where did God the word make his dwelling among us? In Jesus. So we can dwell in the house of the Lord by dwelling in Jesus who has dwelt with us. And so again, when we dwell in Jesus, it's not that our circumstances are miraculously taken away necessarily. It's just that we are safe. He is our stronghold, even while the circumstances continue. So Mel Gibson played the Scottish rebel leader William Wallace in Bravehearts. I know it will bring a warm feeling to David's heart, maybe one or two others. Uh, but there was that memorable line, they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Well, how much more is that true when Jesus is our treasure? Whatever else this fallen world throws at us, nothing and no one can separate us from him. So do you know what it is to dwell in Jesus? If you're still investigating these things, if you're still thinking these things through for yourself, this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's not about sort of trying to Make yourself right with God by doing the right things, ticking the boxes, living the right life. It's about, first and foremost, dwelling in Jesus, coming to him and finding life in him that he offers us for free through his death for us. And the rest of the psalm then spells out a bit more what this dwelling looks like. Gazing on his beauty, seeking his ways. So let's look at each of those things as well. So the second thing then, to gaze, that David prays. He wants to gaze on his beauty. It was there in verse 4, but then in verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. You, you can't gaze on the beauty of someone you've never met. So this, and this points us to the difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. Because there's, there's a difference, isn't there? With the, with the Queen again, I know loads of facts about her. I know, I know when she was born. I think I do. I think she was born in 1926. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I know her family tree or bits of it. I know who her descendants are. I could draw it all out for you on a bit of paper if you wanted, if you're interested. 
I know that every day, without fail, she has a gin and Dubonnet cocktail before lunch. So she has a seriously impressive constitution, it has to be said. But I cannot say I know her. And it might, in one sense, it's the same with God, isn't it? That, that we can reel off facts about him. I can do that. I can reel off a whole load of things about him. He's holy. He's loving. He's just. He sent Jesus to die for us. I can explain to you how, what Jesus' death achieved, how the cross works. I can explain what it means to be justified by faith alone. When I was at theological college, I wrote a 15,000-word dissertation on how Jesus has both a divine will and a human will as one person in two natures. Now, you may know some of those things. You may know none of them. You may know all of them. But does knowing any of those things in and of themselves mean you actually know God? Well, of course, you need to know about God to know him, but it's only the beginning Now, we might say this is proving too much, because, well, none of us know God face to face, do we? We don't know him like people knew Jesus 2,000 years ago. And yet, in the New Testament, Paul shows us what this means for us today when he prays in Ephesians chapter 1 for his readers to know God better by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. He opens the eyes of our hearts so we can gaze upon God's beauty in Christ. So we can not just know about him, but through what we know about him, we can know him. And the way we do that is in our hearts. Our hearts gaze upon him. So the question is then, well, what are our hearts gazing upon What do our hearts find beautiful? What do we turn over in our imagination, in our daydreams? Is it perhaps a desire for a particular career, a particular person, a house, whatever it might be? We spend our idle moments dreaming of what life will be like. Or what it, what it would be like if we, if we had that one thing that we don't have and maybe we think we're, no, we're never going to have, but we, that is what we play over in our minds. See, when we do that, what, what we're doing is we're gazing upon the beauty of those things. They, they're capturing our hearts in, in that way. And we naturally do it with everyone and everything except with the living God who made us. So if we want to have confidence, if we want to have contentment, While we wait, we need to pray for our hearts to be enamoured with Jesus. To dwell with him in his word. So that though they take away our life, as it were, we know we are safe because they can't take us from him. So verses 9 and 10 spell that out. The the words there for forsaking are covenant words. They're to do with God breaking his covenant promises, which he's promised not to do. So this is David saying, as you promised, Lord, keep your covenant. Keep your promises. And God has made, for for us as Christians, God has made some extraordinary promises. Romans chapter 8 spells some of them out. It's a great chapter to look at to see what God has promised to us. He says, nothing can separate us 
from the love of Christ. So we can rest in him. We can be confident in him. Because whatever else forsakes us, whoever else forsakes us, he won't. And then thirdly, hand in hand with gazing comes seeking to seek. Verses 11 to 14. David prayed to seek God in his temple in verse 4. And now in verse 11 he spells that out. Teach me your way. So remember Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 which we saw a few weeks ago if you were here. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says. This is the same idea. You see, with knowing God comes obeying God. You can't have one without the other. See, on the one hand, if you just seek his will without gazing on his beauty, what do you get? Well, you get the kind of joyless, heartless legalism that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. If you seek his will without gazing on his beauty. But, on the other hand, if you just gaze on his beauty but think you can live life how you like, well, you have a sham like a marriage or a friendship where you want intimacy, you want the joy of companionship, but you want it without lifting a finger to help the other person. So you can't say it's my way or the highway in every circumstance of your relationship, your friendship, and expect joyful intimacy and companionship. And it's the same with God. We can't expect intimacy and confidence and contentment while we wait if we're consciously living life in defiant disobedience of him. Well, what should our response to this be? We may well look at these verses and think, well, you know, it would be lovely to dwell and gaze and seek, but I know full well that doesn't describe me very well at all. I struggle, I'm weak. And even as I'm supposed to be patiently waiting, I am in fact fretting and worrying and generally messing up. Well, even David himself would have known his own failures and inadequacies. They're well documented in the Old Testament, aren't they? At the times he failed to seek God's ways and he went his own way. But there is one who lived this life and who can sing these words. Just think how Jesus dwelt in his Father's presence all through his life. How Jesus sought and found perfect intimacy with his Father in prayer. How Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He lived that life for us so that when he died, he was dying so that we too might know God and live for God despite our sin. See, joined to Christ... We can sing this psalm. We can find God's presence in him. We can know him. We can live for him. So these words can be ours. So that we can pray, verse 13, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. How can any of us be confident of that in and of ourselves? And yet in Christ we can have that confidence, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. So then whatever the circumstances, whether the news is good or bad, whatever the season of our life, we can wait for the Lord. We can be strong, we can take heart, 
and we can wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are people who struggle to wait, to wait patiently, to wait with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We want to be waiting with confidence, as we read of David doing so here. We want to be those who dwell with Jesus by gazing on him, on his perfection, on his beauty through the gospel, through his death for us. Please may that be what captures our hearts. How can it not when we see the full glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? May our hearts be captured more and more so that we gaze on him and not our idols. And then that we seek your ways seek to go your way, not ours. We seek to, um, to choose what we know you want, not what we want. We'll, we'll never do that in our own strength. We will always continue to mess up. But joined to Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who works in us and changes us. We thank you for that. And we rely on you, we rely on him to work in us day by day, so that we may be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen.